Hello and welcome to Smoke and Shadow. I am your host, Victoria Sadowski. And settle on in, because I haven't read over these notes since I last edited them. So I can't remember specifics of what I wrote down. So a lot of this, I'm going to be relearning it with you. So super fun. Also really excited because I haven't delved into this topic since college. So I'm a little excited for that. And again, if you have sources or references or parts of this uh, folklore that I didn't include and you want me to include possibly later, you can always send that stuff to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com and I'll look at those. Uh, also, just disclaimer before we continue, just in case anyone was wondering at this point, I know it's second episode, so like, I don't know, but I'm still working on getting this podcast out through Apple Music. I only have Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud right now. I'm having a little bit of trouble with Apple Music, but I'm corresponding with Apple Connect support, so hold tight on that for Apple listeners, which you can't probably hear me because it's not on Apple yet. Anyway, <laughs> so the topic today is Shaktism and the Hindu matriarch Parvati. So we're going to be focusing on Shaktism, but mainly through the folklore that is surrounding Parvati. Um, this is going to get really, really confusing really quick because of what Shaktism is and how it evolves, where it came from. So just to start off, Shaktism is one of the major Hindu denominations where the metaphysical reality is considered metaphorically a woman and Shakti is regarded as the supreme godhead. Other denominations being Shivism, Brahmanism, and Vishnavism. Essentially, uh, Shaktism is seen as the personification of creative, sustaining, and destructive or auspicious energy. It is occasionally seen as the supreme Brahman itself, uh, otherwise known as like infinity, like all things. Although this notion is debated to be a later Puranic merging of Orthodox Brahmanism and sectarian Shaktism, which we'll dive into. Also, you're going to want to remember this. Devi is the feminine divine. Deva is the masculine divine. Also, for the non-binary folk, um, there also is when people refer to the masculine as Mahadeva and the feminine as Mahadevi. There is also the sort of they-them pronoun of the gods being Mahadev. So there is that option, which is really nice. Um, I've seen that a lot on Instagram sometimes, especially people who practice both Shaktism and Brahmanism will refer to the godheads as Mahadev instead of Mahadeva or Mahadevi. So in essence, uh, there is one goddess that is essentially everything. This is very similar to Greek Macedonian um, mythology of Gaia. It's kind of similar to that, not exactly, but in case you're wondering for a comparison, Gaia and uh, the head goddess of Shaktism are kind of seen as very similar, like the Mother Earth, essentially. But uh, the way that it's different is that Gaia specifically maintains Earth, whereas the Adi Shakti or Adi Parashakti, the major goddess, is seen as the entire universe. Everything and anything is this one goddess um, that is broken down into different uh, aspects or avatars. This goddess is also referred to as Ama in South India, especially in the states of Karnataka, Tamil Nadu, Kerala, Telangana, and Adra Pradesh. I'm trying to pronounce this as best as I can, 
but I'm an American, so I'm going to assume I'm wrong anyway. Shaktism has different sub-traditions, ranging from that of the gracious Parvati to the fierce Kali. And this is sort of a pantheon of different goddesses that grew after the decline of Buddhism in India, wherein Hindu and Buddhist goddesses were combined to form the Mahavidya, which is a list of 10 different goddesses. And this is where things start to get a little tricky because we're not going to list out all the 10 goddesses. We're going to focus on one sort of stream of folklore, uh, again, pertaining to Parvati. Um, and she is, I believed, one of those ten goddesses. Uh, the earliest references to Shakti are said to be associated with the Bag Horse Stone that dates back to uh, 9000 to 8000 BCE. And it's only highly plausible that the stone is associated with Shakti. They're still looking into it. But the worship of the Shiv and Shakti were also prevalent in the Indus Valley civilization. Alright, and finally we're going to talk about the goddess Parvati. Um, who is one of the many aspects of the Adipara Shakti. Known by many other names, she is the gentle and nurturing aspect of the supreme Hindu goddess, and arguably the most popular currently in India. She's the consort of Shiva, Shiva being the masculine divine. Uh, Shiva is, in essence, the ultimate yogi, as well as the destroyer of the universe. And he is part of the Trimutri, Parvati, Saraswati, and Lakshmi, the wives of the Trimutri, are known as the Tridevi. She is also the reincarnation of Sati, Shiva's first wife, who died during uh, Yanja, Sati being the first part of the Shakti prior to Parvati, in the folklore anyway. And Yanja is a bonfire ceremony for the gods, where in this particular storyline, Sati sacrificed herself because her father was not accepting of her marriage with Shiva, and then he tried to, like, trap her or something, and she was like, no, 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 I'm just being reincarnated, bye, and then just jumped into the bonfire. Shiva was, of course, pissed. Like Sati, Parvati worked for Shiva's attention and adopted his nomadic and rustic ways, which is, you know, why Sati's father didn't like him at first. And this sort of happened with Parvati, but it went a little bit smoother. Um, she didn't have to commit suicide obviously. And now we're going to try to talk about uh, some of the different aspects of Parvati herself. So by now you can sort of see that there's this supreme goddess, the Adipara Shakti, and she gets broken down into different subcategories. And then those subcategories also get broken down into smaller ones. And we'll get into why that is happening. But first, we're going to talk about the different aspects of Parvati. One being Annapurna. Shiva essentially belittles Parvati's work as the sort of fertility goddess of the earth and is like, well, the ultimate Brahman doesn't, you know, we don't need to care for these things. Everything just needs to, we need to be aware of our personal being and experience the world around us. We don't need to do all this work. And of course, she was like, um, bitch, no. Uh, so she leaves the world and it creates this whole dark and desolate time where Shiva essentially suffers from eternal isolation and loneliness. And there's nothing fertile to benefit from. There's nothing going on in the world. He's just there to experience nothing. And then eventually she feels bad, uh, mainly not for Shiva, but mainly for the people who are experiencing just like complete, desolation, starvation, you know, all that good, good. So 
she comes back in the form of Annapurna, uh, the goddess of food, and brings, you know, fertility and abundance back to the world. And Shiva's like, I was wrong. You were great and you're doing all these things that make sense. And she's like, I fucking know. Thanks for recognizing that, my stupid husband. So <laughs> moving on to uh, Durga lore. So Durga is the demon slaying aspect of Parvati, also often seen as the daughter of Parvati in some light, uh, mainly because she is also, and this is what I learned, uh, I took this from my notes from like way, way back in the day, but Durga is essentially the embodiment of all the gods' power. And if you're like, well, all the gods are just subdivisions of this one massive goddess, yeah, I know, it gets really confusing. And again, we'll talk about all these subcultures and how they collide and how they interact now um, because they were all at one point subcultures but Durga is Parvati's demon slaying form I fell in love with this woman in college I have a picture that I drew of her that's still on my wall um, my cat loves to tear all my art off my wall because he's psycho and it's like the one thing he doesn't touch and I'm like oh he knows better he knows not to mess with the divine woman or maybe you just can't reach it I don't know so yeah, she is the demon slaying form. She fights a demon specifically, and I should have written it down. Again, I didn't, but there's like specific lore behind Durga and how she goes to war with a demon. Kali is sort of like a mirrored aspect of Durga, um, but again, they're both aspects of Parvati, and Kali is uh, Parvati as well as Shakti's pure destructive form. So this is the depiction that is wild to me because this is the one where you see her with her tongue rolling out of her mouth she's got four arms each one's holding a weapon and she's wearing a necklace of severed heads and if you're like victoria why don't you have that on your wall i'm working on it it's getting there i haven't had time to draw it out um the last one was for a devotional project from a uh hindu class so like there was reason to sit down and do it that i haven't had since so <laughs> One day I'll have a poster of Kali on my wall and I will feel a lot more powerful. Oh, and uh, to backtrack a little bit, uh, Parvati is the mother of Ganesha, the uh, god with the elephant's head. And if you're wondering, why does he have an elephant's head? It actually has to do with Parvati and Shiva lore. So Parvati created Ganesha to keep Shiva at bay because she would like bathe and do things on her own and he would just waltz right in and be like, yo, what's up? And she was like, give me some freaking privacy, dude. Come on, I might be your wife, but geez. So Ganesha was created as a guard to keep Shiva at bay when Parvati was doing her own thing. And then one day Shiva shows up and Ganesha's like, halt, you cannot go any further. My mother says you cannot enter. And Shiva's like, fuck that and severs his head. Parvati loses her shit and then Shiva immediately is like oh no Kali is about to show up so I need to do something real quick finds the closest head in the area and finds an elephant and goes that'll do so he puts the elephant's head on Ganesha and is like there you go now you're my son now too so Ganesha is also considered Shiva's son for that reason I guess but uh, also keep in mind these tales have different variations to them so i'm just picking one of the ones that i find the most prominent that i've heard the most so keep that in mind and uh before we move on let's do the one thing that we all know i do best
Okay. Okay. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to do a big bong rip because we were still talking kind of about Shiva. Shiva loves weed. The people who, the devotees of Shiva, uh, they fucking love weed. So uh, we're going to have to come back at some point and do a specific episode on Shivism because it's just wildly appropriate. So um, next up, we are going to discuss not necessarily a direct aspect of Parvati, but one of her avatars named Minakshi. For whatever reason, due to other sub-folklore about fish having, like, motherly qualities, I guess, or feminine qualities, uh, Minakshi is the fish-eyed one. Um, she has another name, uh, I believe, called Tadakai, which translates to fish-eyed one. It says here that uh, Minakshi is one of three Shakti avatars, the other two are Kamakshi and Visalakshi. Minakshi herself is the princess and would later become queen of Pandya. King, oh god, oh god, King Maliadvaja and the queen decide to do Yanja um, in order to seek a son for succession because they're having trouble with pregnancy. But instead of a son, they receive a somehow already three-year-old daughter with not two, but three breasts. And they're kind of like, what the hell? And so the god Shiva uh, intervenes somehow. I don't know if, how he does this, but he tells them not to be discouraged and to raise Minakshi like a son. And that when she finds her husband, her third breast will vanish. And they're like, okay like that sounds bomb sounds good so she grows up uh is crowned the successor before that they can find her husband she still has three breasts so they're like yeah just whatever she's the successor she's done the work and when she meets her husband or soon-to-be husband Sundarishvara, and i have to show you guys something because this just tickles me pink. So I need to show you the translation that Google showed me. So here's like the real one. Sundarishvara. And here's the American one. Sundara's wearer. Oh my god! Like why did they put that in there? Why? When you have the correct pronunciation, why would you also have that? Also, yes, I stand by what I said. That was the American one because no British speaking person would say it like that. Sunday swearer. <laughs> no way in hell. Anyway, moving on. When the form of Shiva arrives, Minakshi meets him. Uh, her third breast then vanishes and she takes on the full form of Minakshi. Uh, and also, I just want to talk about the temple itself in Madurai a little bit because this thing's nuts. I wrote a paper on this uh, back in college and Spoiler alert, I used a lot of that for, a lot of my notes from that class are in here. I have other sources, but I did go back and look at some of my notes, as well as this paper, because this temple is nuts. It's so beautiful, and it's not just like one temple, it's this whole compound, and is devoted to like this one, you could say localized goddess, but again, we'll get into the whole 
how these cultures merged and how they all interact. Because there are different cultures within India that all merged into what is now considered Hinduism. So the goddess of Madurai is most frequently known by her Sanskrit name, Meenakshi Devi. In Tamil or Tamil Nadu, she is known as Minatsi. I don't, I don't know the pronunciation of that specific word, so do what you will with that. So this temple is in the Dravidian or Southern Indian style of architecture. And it's done in a way where the layout of the grounds coil around the center of the temple. Uh, the complex is surrounded by gopurams or tower gateways that lead you around this coil path toward the center of the temple. And the reason why gopurams exist is because it's a sort of tool to prepare the devotee's mind, as well as the body, because it's a trek to get there, for the full experience of connecting with the divine. So it sort of prepares them mentally and physically. And each gateway is sort of like a new platform to get closer and closer to the divine as you go inward. Because these gopurams are lavishly decorated with statues of different gods and divine beings. And it looks like a fucking party. Like, they look like they're having a great time. And they're so ornate and colorful. The outermost gopurum is usually, if not always, the largest. And they grow smaller the further you go in. They usually have shrines inside them or stands where you can buy offerings for the gods each way. And that's kind of how they make their money because they get people going in and buying something at the first one and they keep going they're like oh i might want this too and then buy another one and then by the time they're through all the gopurams they have like so many offerings for minachi but also when i was taking a class on this my professor was like if you ever go to these temples don't spend your money at the first gopuram or the first you know uh place to buy offerings because you're gonna go past a bunch of them and each one they're gonna try and sell you stuff so like don't buy things at the first one that's like, I guess, the travel rule when you're traveling. I don't know how, like, the devotees go about it. I think some might stop at every single one for specific offerings, or maybe someone will just stop at the last one. I don't know. I think it depends on the person, but who knows. So, yeah. Beautiful, lavish gopurams and temple on the inside. And this place is, this compound is just huge. Within the temple from April 15th to May 15th, so hey, when I'm recording this, this is the season. Ceremonies take place inside the temple, reenacting the marriage between the avatars of Parvati and Shiva. Each section or pavilion of the temple is also dedicated to a different part of the divine wedding. And it is this season that attracts a lot of uh, pilgrims to the temple, primarily those of within the state of Tamil Nadu, although there are others that come from all around. Manakshi herself, or the goddess of Madurai, is referenced in a 13th century Tamil text that dates back to 3000 BCE. This is sort of around the time of the height of the Indus Valley. So I guess, according to my notes, again, I didn't revise this shit before I started today. So I wrote... Uh, this is around the time of the merge of the Aryan and Dravidian cultures. And towards the end of the Indus Valley civilization, some people migrated down south and west, west, east, northeast, to the Ganges during the collapse of the Harappan cities. 
Madurai now sits where ancient Pandya once did, and is usually regarded as the cultural center of the Tamil Nadu country. That region had been settled since the Paleolithic era, and the Pandyan dynasty was known to the Greeks as it appeared in ancient Ptolemy maps. It is also noted in ancient texts that the Pandyan kingdom sent an embassy to the court of Augustus around 25 BCE. So this portion of India was bumping for a long time and was sort of doing its own thing alongside the Indus Valley civilization, as well as continued far after that as well. Minakshi in this region is seen as the main deity, mainly of Madurai. And she is thought to be an indigenous pre-Aryan goddess. So Aryan equals Indo-European settlers in the north, which sort of helped give birth to the Indus Valley civilization. These cultures up north had Brahmanism as well as Shivism. So we can see how the more masculine, what we would consider orthodox cults, cults? Sure. Trickled down towards the south, towards the areas that practice Shaktism. So another example of a god that came from this more Aryan culture that we would associate uh, with the Western world is Indra, who is a god of the heavens and god of thunder. Who does that sound like to you? It sounds like a few gods in the West to me. So there is speculation that some of this culture was coming from the West, where Shaktism is seen as native to Southern India. And we also know this because Dravidian architecture, as well as ancient texts from that region, have a more feminine sort of divine presence compared to the Aryan culture that comes down later. Uh, so minor local gods of Tamil Nadu are said to have originated from ancient warriors, priests, priestesses, kings, queens, and heroes. So all of these different places in southern India, all of their own designated deity, sort of like Manakshi from Madurai, and they were later adapted to these more Aryan cults. So an example of this would be not just Manakshi being a avatar of Parvati, who is more, you know, a combination of Brahmanism and Shaktism, but you have... Hold on, hold on. Before we continue, I forgot what I was doing. I forgot why we were here, other than, you know, religion and shit. That was a much smoother hit than the first one. All right. So yeah, you have another example of this being Karupaswamy. I don't know how to pronounce it. I hope that's how you pronounce it. Who reports to Ayanar, one of Shiva's sons. So there becomes this sort of hierarchy similar to angels to Yahweh, but in a more specific contextual hierarchy. And yeah, I know like there are certain prominent figures in Judaism and Christianity, but Hinduism is a whole nother fucking monster. Like it is so culturally different. I can, you can find similarities to the two, but the culture's just like the viewpoint, the perspective that people have towards it is different. So localized gods either become a 
minor deity that reports to either the Trimutri or their descendants. Or you have, in the case of Parvati, you have like multiple incarnations in a row, all of which being different manifestations or form of one whole goddess, which Brahmanism is sort of like that, which is why Shaktism and Brahmanism sort of meld kind of well. But again, Brahmanism being more masculine in nature and Shaktism being more feminine. Also, sorry if you keep hearing noise. My fridge just keeps like making these weird knocking sounds and then doing that radiator sound that it does. I'm doing my best. Bear with me. So Shaktism in nature just reminds me personally of Buddhism in the sense that the universe is constantly expanding and constantly contracting. Similar to, you know, science. Like, if you have the means to see smaller and smaller, you're always going to find smaller and smaller things. And if you have the ability to look at bigger things, you'll start seeing a bigger picture that expands each and every time. In essence, being the definition of infinity. Like, it's constantly going in two different directions all the time. Buddhism leaning more solely masculine, focusing on presence and awareness in the universe from a masculine perspective, especially if we're talking about the Shakyamuni Buddha, who, you know, takes the form of a man. I believe that's the one where he was originally a prince. So yeah, from that perspective, it would definitely be considered uh, more masculine or patriarchal. And with that... Oh god, I thought my building manager came up to my door. That was terrifying. Okay, so this is the part that I mentioned before where I wrote some things down and I forgot what they were. Although, back to the whole comparison of Buddhism thing. Shaktism is seen more as the more powerful counterpart to Shivism. Well, depends who you ask and where you're asking, so keep that in mind. So yeah, this is where my notes start to go in a whole new direction. I feel like I just went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> also, this is one of the longest, if not the only standing feminine cult in the world today. Clap, clap, ladies in the East. Good job. Sorry, Western world ladies, but you guys are still under a lot of Abrahamic cult shit. I say that like I'm not from the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> Similar to ancient Mesopotamia in the sense that the merging and or conquering of cultures creates a merging of these sectarian polytheistic beliefs. So again, you have Shivism, Brahmanism, and Vishnavism, which were all more Aryan, sort of like Northern Indian gods, where they took upon this very Western idea of a triad of gods. So similar to Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, you have Shiva, Brahman, and Vishnu. And this mythology, over the course of the emerging of cultures and culture clashes in India, you have them sort of facing Shaktism. And I think just by, you know, how it happened, because no one person can control, like, how this evolution happens. But Indian folklore, Hindu folklore, is a lot more of a, I want to say, peaceful merging. 
of different cultures and coming together because they all interact with one another and sort of create this now modern Hindu pantheon. Whereas, you know, in ancient Mesopotamia, shit was wild and monotheism that stemmed from Yahwism came out of kind of nowhere and it became this polytheism against monotheism sort of situation. So it was relatively peaceful in comparison, although, you know, there was still war and clashing. Chandragupta made sure that. So if you don't know who that is, he was uh, a king at one point in northern India, and uh, the rest you can look up on your own. So a lot of people speculate that gods like Indra, as well as, you know, even the Trimutri kind of stem from Macedonian influence during their conquest towards the collapse of the Indus Valley civilization. So that's where this secondary, and yes, yeah, secondary Aryan wave comes into uh, that region. The first migration being, I believe, a megalithic migration um, that came from like Indo-European migrations that sort of gave birth to the Indus Valley civilization. And then the later migrations were less of migrations and more of flat-out conquests. So, and then later the Aryans were said to at times be invaders to southern regions of India while prioritizing more masculine, robust worldviews. You could say Orthodox Brahmanism had a similar vibe in that way to Orthodox Judaism or Christianity. In my cynical yet humble opinion, says my notes, Shiva is Bay. What the fuck was I on? Oh my god. There are bullets. I'm going to get so high for my Shivism episode. <laughs> Shiva and Weed are best friends. P.S. This is an Inception religion. <laughs> what the fuck? I was high. I was, I do, I do the research high. I give the research high. <laughs> Not all the time, but this time it definitely was what happened. So, like, I don't know. Is it an Inception religion? A little bit. And they all kind of are in a sense. I'm sorry, but, like, Yahwism doesn't do the Inception thing for me. Maybe that's a personal thing. Or maybe, you know, it's just the constraints of dualism <laughs> that I think Hinduism doesn't really practice too much dualism. It's all very complex. Like, there is a single source, I want to say, which is referred to as the Brahmin, but is also, you know, Shaktism's like, that's essentially what Shaktism is, and the main goddess being that one principle of infinity. It doesn't have that dualistic tone that I think, you know, demonization and angelicizing do. Because again, it's just infinite. Whereas, because of how the folklore unfolded due to political issues at the time in ancient Mesopotamia, the attitude towards polytheism was definitely within the folklore. And so you have this perspective of fuck everything else, even though that's where monotheism originated from. It's sort of a rejection of past cultures, sort of like how Protestantism would be towards Catholicism. I mean, that's way more of a specific thing later on, but like similar principle of like rejecting past things. But then you've got India where the cultural melding 
is a lot more seamless, I want to say. But there is the argument that Shaktism has been pushed aside by all these other Orthodox and sectarian cultures in the North that were, again, more Aryan. So yeah, Shaktism is wild. And all of the architecture, too, is just so bananas. It's so beautiful. Completely covered in statues, and it's like this vertical party. That's what it looks like. It looks like a vertical party of the divine. And they're all, a lot of them are like repainted. So a lot of them are still very vibrant and colorful, which I think is awesome. It's just, it's just so in your face. So yeah. Also Parvati. I love Parvati. She's a queen. She's a whole queen. If someone questions her, she's like, all right, I'm dipping out. Starve. Although my favorite aspect, hands down, is probably Kali. She's just literal destruction. Because it's, it's interesting how you have Shiva, who is the ultimate destroyer, but then he's married to this woman who can turn into literal destruction embodied. And is also kind of afraid of it, if you remember the Ganesha tales, where he doesn't want to piss her off. <laughs> he really doesn't want to. He's aware that she can do things that are not good for him. So, yeah. That's, that's the story of Shaktism and the Magiarch Parvati. So, and again, there can be like an episode dedicated to each of these different aspects of the Adi Parashakti. So, some of my uh, sources for this were The Sacred Marriage of the Hindu Goddess by William P. Harmon, The Triumph of the Goddess by C. Mackenzie Brown, Hindu Goddesses, Visions of the Divine Feminine in the Hindu Religious Traditions by David Kinsley, and I also relied heavily on college notes from a class on Asian ideology and religion taught by Dana Sawyer, who is the author of the biography Houston Smith, Wisdom Keeper, Living the World's Religions. So yeah, shout out to Dana. And before I forget, you can find me on Instagram at Smoke and Shadow Podcast. And there you can find a link to my Patreon. And if you so choose to donate, thank you. And just so everyone knows, there are three brackets, as there typically are. Straight Edge being, you know, thank you for your support. Casual Smokers being uh, early access to new episodes. And stoners being early access as well as getting a blooper reel. So working on that too. But yes, if you do any of those, thank you very much. And with that, that's the show, friends. So I'll see you next time.